Marshal 31. You read me? We found something in the ice. We need some help down here. Can anybody hear me? We found something. We found something. thousand years in the Arctic blast. I am your solo practitioner, Travis Maxwell Boone. And tonight I've got some coffee brewed along with some herbal enchantments. Because we've been exploring the depths of madness, the depths of the unknown from another elsewhere. Now let's see what happens when our very own universe, our celestial cradle, spits out something ungodly and sends us a message, although meaningless. This grand apathy is nearly a constant in nature and a dilemma still dealt with in our species. But for the teeth to be bared down from across time and space, it is an assurance of no divine purpose. We've covered demonic possession, shadow people, witchcraft, mentally disturbed sociopaths, redneck cannibals, and interdimensional evils. Now let's look at a film that holds an invading alien threat, told masterfully under the direction of John Carpenter, through the lens of man's distrust of man and our true ignorance when it comes to our place in this expanding menagerie. But before I bring you John Carpenter's The Thing, would you be so kind as to join us? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Radio Public, or visit our official website, thenightclub.fireside.fm, for other podcatchers and direct from the void downloads and streaming. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Go ahead and talk to me there. I answer back and reply to everything. And you can reach out and touch pure evil using our email, thenightclubpodcast at gmail.com. If you have a question or would like me to talk about a certain film, uh, perform a midnight ritual for you, go ahead and hit me up there. I'm open to ideas. Oh, and uh, give us a five-pointed pentagram rating. And write up a review. Still not seeing any of those. I'd like to know what you guys think. 
Now, before I continue on, I wanted to pay tribute to a few awesome folks that I found out there on the World Wide Web, some of which I've done business with and others I'm currently listening to. These are some shout-outs. First of all, Batten Your Belfry. This is an Etsy shop that sells art prints such as uh, a Rougarou, a Louisiana werewolf, uh, some art prints of Midsummer, and I personally bought for my wife a uh, print of Harry Potter and Sirius Black in wolf form. Fucking awesome artwork. Uh, they also have enamel pins. If you like Black Phillip or Krampus, there's a bunch of fucking cool pins here. They've got stickers and apparel. Uh, you can find them at www.etsy.com slash shop slash batten your belfry or find them on Instagram. You can follow the links there. An- another awesome shop I found, uh, Oddity Bookshop. They sell vintage horror, science fiction, and fantasy books. I recently purchased from this person, Cycle of the Werewolf by Stephen King, a first print paperback, and a book called Prince of Darkness by Barbara Michaels, no relation to the John Carpenter film, although that would have been fucking awesome. Uh, There's also We Come in Peace sci-fi. They also sell vintage science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and I purchased IR-11's Rosemary's Baby, so I'm going to read that motherfucker soon. Oh, and this is pretty cool. Uh, Salem Stitching. They do handmade embroidered patches, and I commissioned one, so as soon as I get that, I'll be posting an image on the Insta and the Facebook, so go and follow us there at the Nightclub Podcast. Check it out. And also check out some of the podcasts that I've been listening to. Uh, join Austie and Haley on Spice Podcast, where they discuss the supernatural, phenomenal, immoral, criminal, and evil things of the world. I really enjoy them. Uh, check out Hellbound, hosted by Lara and Sarah. Yeah, their names rhyme. It's cool. And they cover murders and cults, conspiracies, and all things spooky. Uh, then head over to Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Check out Forever Midnight and subscribe to Horrorphilia. I love that podcast network. They have great shows like Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast, hosted by Brandon Christian and Dave Z, who also hosts the uh, Watt Z Party along with Mr. Watson himself. If you'd like a slightly more in-depth and a hell of a lot funnier coverage of this film, check out episode 27 of the Say You Love Satan 80s Horror Podcast, hosted by Steph, Jessup, Malala and John. Those fucking guys are great too. Oh, and lastly, but not least, check out Sinisterhood. Uh, they were brought to my attention thanks to Hellbound. Hosts Christy Wallace and Heather McKinney are thorough and entertaining as hell. I've listened to a couple of episodes and they're going to be a mainstay in my feed now. At last... Tonight's communion of the nightclub coven will hold no query nor quandary or topic of any kind. The stroke of midnight is at hand, so we head to Antarctica, an alien continent right here on Earth, where we will break down, scene by scene, John Carpenter's The Thing. If you have not seen this film, stop listening now. Otherwise, let the ritual begin. Why are you torturing me like this? Why? 
written by Bill Lancaster and directed by horror and genre master John Carpenter. 1982's The Thing is a remake of the 1951 science fiction classic, The Thing from Another World. Both movies are based on the 1938 novella, Who Goes There? by John W. Campbell Jr. The Thing stars Kurt Russell as McCready, Wilford Brimley as Blair, T.K. Carter as Knowles, David Clennon as Palmer, motherfucking Keith Badass Davis as Childs, Rupert Desart as Dr. Copper, Charles Hallahan as Norris, Peter Maloney as Bennings, George Bennings, Richard Masur as Clark, Donald Moffat as Gary, Joel Polis as Fuchs, his name almost could be it's like fucks, but it's Fuchs, and Thomas Waits, no relation to Tom Waits, as Windows. It's a hell of an ensemble cast, and everyone plays an important part in the story. Um, no performance is dry or wooden. Everyone in this film is on point. Uh, as, as well as uh, also starring some death fodder Norwegians who uh, fly in right at the beginning. An entire facility of dead Norwegians is later discovered, but we'll get there. Carpenter's film sticks more closely to the source material than the 1951 version, and having already paid homage in Halloween, Carpenter rewatched the original for inspiration. The movie had passed through many hands, such as Toby Hooper, John Landis, and a few others before finally landing with Carpenter, Lancaster, cinematographer Dean Cundey, and special effects artist Rob Botton. Some of his notable films include The Fog, the Howling, Robocop, Legend, and Total Recall. This motherfucker knows special effects. Filming took place on a Los Angeles soundstage and on location in Alaska and Canada. Shooting conditions outdoors led the camera lenses to freeze and break and nearly sent an entire bus of crew members off a cliff due to the snow. Actor Keith David had broken his hand before his scenes began filming, but soldiered on and camera assistants were almost made sacrifices when having to run for cover during the base's explosion sequences. Ennio Marconi was tapped to write the score, and basically wrote a John Carpenter score. Rob Botton had ideas for the creative effects, which were translated to storyboard by Mike Flug and mentor Hubner, and involved the Thing having traveled the galaxy prior to being on Earth and could take on any shape of any being it had assimilated before. Creating all of the creature effects was a grueling task that took its toll, mainly on Botten, who worked for a year without a day off, and developed double pneumonia and a bleeding ulcer during this time. Effects guru Stan Winston even came in to lend a hand. Also, let it be known that the nihilistic ending was almost scrapped in favor of a happier one. But at the last minute, Carpenter dug his heels in and kept it nice and bleak. No need to make it all fucking happy and fa-la-la for the mainstream audiences. This is why a director's artistic vision should sometimes not be left in question. John Carpenter, if I'm not mistaken, this, this was his only major studio film and because it was a box office failure, his multiple film deal with Universal was uh, bought out and he returned to the independent scene. It was tackling a juggernaut like the uh, optimistic family film E.T. 
Steven Spielberg folks, so, and in the 80s, height of his powers. And uh, it was being released against powerhouses of the year like Conan the Barbarian, Tron, and Wrath of Khan. Along with next to no marketing, it led this film to be barely making back its budget. Initially, critics called the film boring, sterile, and cold quintessential moron movie of the 80s and uh, my personal favorite instant junk but after being reassessed over the years the thing is on more top 10 lists than any of the other films previously mentioned and it has been rebranded as a peerless masterpiece of relentless suspense retina wrecking visual excess and outright nihilistic terror it's now considered a true genre blending classic Almost a horror, both a horror and science fiction masterpiece. It's stunning how audiences miss this one on the first viewing. But it's clear now, and its themes of paranoia, mistrust, lost humanity, and cosmic indifference are what draw me in the most. This is also what ultimately drew Carpenter to the project. And it leaps off the page thanks to the performances and the monster itself. A shapeless thing that we cannot attach one single fear to. I admit, I do not have a lot of history with this film, which is why it didn't make my top 35 or 40, if you include honorable mentions, uh, back in the Halloween not-so-special, was it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but I do see the quality and the undeniable effort put into the production as well as the passion of everyone involved trying to make this picture work. Now, assimilate with us as we suffer through uncovering the mysteries of the... The film opens on black and white title credits that reveal the stars, and out of the deep blackness comes a saucer-shaped spacecraft that enters the Earth's atmosphere in a raging flame before the main title slowly burns its way onto the screen, backlit with a haunting blue hue. It reads, John Carpenter's The Thing. The setting is Antarctica, Winter of 1982. Icy winds race across the mountainous, snow-covered landscape. The whirring of a helicopter blade in the distance signals that a chase is afoot. The black chopper is barreling towards a fleeing husky across the frozen, unforgiving tundra. The men in the helicopter begin opening fire, trying to kill the dog who enters the area of United States National Science Institute Station No. 4. The researchers and staff of Station 4 are busy playing ping-pong in the rec room, and we see R.J. McCready pouring himself a scotch whiskey, neat, and playing computer chess. The whiskey no doubt makes him overconfident in his chess match with the computer, but he is swiftly outmaneuvered by the artificial intelligence. Disgusted, he pours his alcoholic beverage into the CPU, frying it before calling it a cheating bitch. In a series of sweeping majestic shots, the husky makes its way into the compound outside, and the helicopter circles the perimeter. 
McCready and several other men come outside to investigate and figure out the aircraft is Norwegian because of the word Norge on the side. The men in the chopper drop an explosive near the dog, but it misses. The helicopter touches down by the animal right outside of the station. As the husky leaps up in desperation on one of Station 4's occupants, a Norwegian pulls the pin on an explosive. However, when he goes to throw it, the bomb slips out of his hand and lands behind him in the snow. For some reason, the other Norwegian attempts to recover the live weapon and gets blown to pieces, destroying the helicopter in the process. Station 4's men look on in shock and confusion at the absurd devastation. The clumsy Norwegian begins screaming in a foreign language and tries shooting the dog, instead hitting one of the men in the leg. The others disperse as the Norwegian hunts down the dog on foot, but a shot rings out from a nearby building, and with a fresh new head wound, the crazed Norwegian falls to the ground. McCready checks on George, the man shot in the leg, and passes him the whiskey, which he had been carrying around since the chess match. They put out the fire of the helicopter's husk and cut to George being stitched up by Dr. Copper. Copper tells George the men shooting at the dog were probably victims of cabin fever due to the intense isolation of living in this vast, empty continent. Windows is reaching out for help over the radio and getting fussed by Blair at the same time since he hasn't been able to speak to anyone in about two weeks. This outburst of anger could be due to Station 4's apparent isolation and complete lack of outside communication, coupled with recent events and the death of these two Norwegian strangers. Rollerblading his way into the room, Knowles wonders if maybe the United States is at war with Norway now. The captain is given some shit by Palmer for blasting the Norwegian, and a few others try to deduce what exactly is going on since the circumstances just don't add up. McCready is then tasked with flying dock to the Norwegian station, despite winter storms fast approaching. That evening at Station 4, George asks Knowles to turn down his music via intercom since he was shot earlier. Knowles complies by miming lowering the volume. While Superstitious by Stevie Wonder plays on faintly, we see the husky creeping down a dim-lit hallway elsewhere in the building and enters the room of one of the men who is only seen in silhouette. Far away, Mac and Doc Copper find a smoldering research station and touch down to see if there are any survivors. The inside of the station is ravaged and broken, appearing to have suffered a calamity from within. Doc finds a trail of blood in the snow that blew in from the outside. It leads he and Mac to a man upright in a chair with his throat slit, a shaving razor frozen in his hand. After finding some of the Norwegian scientists' work on a portable video device, Copper and McCready discover a huge block of exhumed ice that has been hollowed out with great precision. They speculate over the discovery of a fossil or animal in the ice, with Mac wondering, where is it then? Just before taking off, the two men also see the burned-up corpse of what appears to be a man, but also something a bit more puzzling. 
as it also seems to have extra appendages spreading out from its gnarled, charred body. They take the contorted figure back to Station 4 for an autopsy. There, with it smoldering and steaming on the table, Blair removes from the slime and sinew a set of normal organs. This grotesque creature with two screaming expressions appears to be a human, at least on the inside. After the procedure, the men are all unwinding in the rec room, except Clark, who kennels the husky that was outrunning the Norwegians with the other dogs. And shortly after he leaves, all hell breaks loose. Snarling and barking, the dogs of Station 4 are completely against having the husky near them, and for good reason only deep primal instinct could feel. The husky that had evaded the murderous Norwegians begins to shake and bleed from its muzzle, before the flesh of its head blooms open like a bloody flower, uncovering the canine skull underneath. One large tongue emerges from where the head was. Small tubular tentacles whip and writhe blindly from all over its body, and several insect-like legs sprout from its back. The dogs are now whimpering, howling and tearing and gnashing at the fence of their kennel, with one dog being sprayed over and over again by this new beast. Clark re-enters the room to see what the commotion is and unlocks the kennel's door. Two dogs make their escape, knocking Clark to the floor. He then sees the tentacles of the creature and locks the kennel back as quickly as he can. McCready is searching for more booze to drink when he hears the howls and screeching coming from the kennel, so he pulls the fire alarm. Mac and the others join the frightened Clark who says, I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off whatever it is. Childs brings a flamethrower in as they all gather around the caged beast, a furless dog's head screeching with bare teeth atop a mass of blood and misshapen flesh. The creature wraps its tentacles around one of the dogs left remaining, and the men begin shooting both the creature and the tangled animal. Clark, clearly distraught, tries to stop them from killing his pooch. Two very large three-fingered claws rise up from behind the beast, and as Charles hesitates, what looks like a human eye in the flesh of the creature splits open, veins and tendons stretching to make way for another blooming mouth that lunges at the men. Childs hesitates no longer and torches it. After a flourish of hot flame, they extinguish the fire. Next morning, they have the blackened body laying on the autopsy table. Blair removes layers of flesh and comes to the conclusion that... What we're talking about here is an organism that imitates other life forms, and it imitates them perfectly. He claims by digesting other life, this thing can shape its cells to mimic what it's digested. He then questions Clark about the bizarre husky, since he was the only one ever alone with it. A little later, Mac, Doc, Blair, and several others watched a video the Norwegians had taken of their excavation. They pinpoint where the dig took place and fly out to that location to find any other clues as to what this entity could be that absorbs and imitates other life. Mac, Captain Gary, and Norris scale a large crater 
and traverse what appears to be a gigantic structure half buried in the ice. Norris calculates that, given the depth of the ice wall, this structure must have been there for at least a hundred thousand years. Nearby they also find where the ice block from earlier had been removed that contained the thing. Back at Station 4 that night, Mac is telling Childs and Palmer about the structure possibly being of extraterrestrial origin, which Childs equates to voodoo bullshit. Palmer claims that UFOs drop like flies all the time. He says the government knows about these chariots of the gods. Blair is questioned on whether or not this could be a possibility. So he runs a simulation in private that concludes... Other team members could be infected, and that if the thing were to reach civilization, it would take approximately 27,000 hours to infect the world's population. Blair promptly arms himself with a handgun. Another man named Fuchs acts to speak to Mac alone, while Windows and George Bennings move the original two-faced body into the storeroom. Fuchs alerts Mac to Blair's reclusiveness after performing the second autopsy and reveals some of Blair's writings in a notebook he lifted from the lab. The writings detailed the being needing to be alone and in close range to absorb and assimilate another life form. The chameleon strikes in the dark. McCready is cold and tired and ready to walk away from the conversation when Fuchs tells all. There is still cellular activity in these burned remains. They're not dead yet. Back in the storeroom, Windows returns to find the two-faced body has moved and hears a wet squirming sound, then bolts after seeing Bennings being overcome by the tentacles of the thing. He goes and retrieves Mac, who heads to the storeroom, only to find Bennings gone, the window smashed out, and they give chase after setting off another alarm to conjure quickly the staff. Mac, Fuchs, and Windows find Bennings on his knees in the snow and light a couple of flares to signal the others where they are. Norris, Doc, and Nalls arrive and witness the thing almost fully assimilate Bennings, who turns to stare them down with completely black eyes. Bennings' screeching face and large claw-like hands half-human but altogether nightmare fuel. Joined by Palmer, Gary, and Child, Station 4's crew looks on in horror as McCready tips over a can of kerosene and lights the alien overtaking Bennings up. As it screams in the flames, Gary, captain of the station, is overcome with grief, but Mac assures him the thing was nearly assimilated and they must burn all of the bodies infected with this cosmic virus. Using the flamethrower, that is exactly what they do. Except Blair is absent from this huge pyre. Windows returns to the radio room while everyone but Mac heads to the rec room. Outside, Mac sees Blair running away from the chopper, and then hears gunfire. He runs in the direction Blair had ran, back into the station, it can hear objects falling and smashing with Blair yelling from another room. Some of the men are posted up outside of the radio room and they warn Mac that Blair has a gun. 
Just then another shot comes from inside with Blair stating, Anybody interferes, I'll kill them. Mac tells them that Blair disabled the helicopter and sends Charles to check on the tractor. Using the same method to dismantle the radios as he had the chopper, Blair wildly swings an axe while yelling, Most of you don't know what's going on around here. Well, I'm damn well sure some of you do. Charles returns and informs them that Blair has destroyed the chopper, the tractor, and has finished killing off the sled dogs. This sends Clark running to the kennels. Childs heads around to the other entrance, and Norris gets a table from the lab. As Blair continues his warpath with the radio room equipment, he shouts, You think that thing wanted to be an animal? No dogs make it a thousand miles through the cold. That thing wanted to be us. When Childs tries to talk him down, he says, You don't want to hurt anybody, and Blair responds by shooting at him immediately. And once he runs out of bullets, he pitches the gun itself. Using the table as a shield, McCready pins Blair against the wall, and after a brief struggle, they manage to subdue their enraged elder. The next morning, they bring Blair to the tool shed and draw a vial of his blood. Before leaving, Blair tells Mac to watch Clark and watch him close. Outside in the Arctic air, Mac, Childs, Gary, Copper, and Fuchs discuss their options. They are now completely cut off from the outside world since Blair has destroyed all of their radio equipment, and they have no way of leaving the compound because Blair destroyed every fucking way of leaving the compound. Mac says they can't just stay and wait things out until spring because one or more of the crew members may be imitations waiting to absorb another victim when the time is right. This is when Doc Copper says they could perform a blood serum test, mixing each crew member's blood with uncontaminated blood in order to see if there's any reaction at all. Copper, Childs, and Gary start setting up the test. Mac warns them to watch Clark, and Fuchs is sent to get the rest of Blair's journals. The fresh, untainted blood is found ruined, the blood bags ripped open, rendering the serum test unachievable. The lock on the blood bank is undamaged, meaning someone opened it up and set it back again. The thing has the key and wants to keep itself hidden. Gary is the captain and the only one with this key, although Dr. Copper does admit to using it from time to time, but returning it right away. Perhaps someone could have lifted it off me, Gary blurts out, sending Childs and Clark into a tizzy, all the men yelling and finger-pointing, trying to narrow down who to blame in the flurry of accusations. They then realize Windows has taken off down the hall to the gun cabinet. Gary pulls his pistol on Windows, who has a shotgun. Mac talks them down, and both men lower their weapons. Gary gives up being captain and lays his pistol down. Norris refuses the duty, and when Childs goes for the gun, Mac grabs it, but not before Clark pulls a knife on Childs. Clearly, there's some allegiances here. With the handgun and Clark's knife, Mac is now in charge. That night, out in the wintry winds, Mac burns the blood bags and lays it out for the men of Station 4. I know I'm human, and if you were all these things, you'd just attack me right now. So some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. 
It'll fight if it has to. But it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes over all of us, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's won. There's a storm hitting us in six hours. We're going to find out who is who. He then orders Copper, Gary, and Clark away from the rest of the men. He tells Norris and Childs to drug the three and tie them up in the rec room. Fuchs and Doc Copper object, but Mac doesn't stand down. He just holds out the barrel of his flamethrower and asserts dominance. In the rec room, Norris administers morphine to Doc Copper with Childs watching over. And back in his quarters, Mac records a message for the world. I'm going to hide this tape when I'm finished. If none of us make it, at least there will be some kind of record. Storm's been hitting us hard for 48 hours, but we still have nothing to go on. He pauses the recording, takes a sip of whiskey, and resumes. One other thing. I think it rips through your clothes when it takes you over. Windows found some shredded long johns, but the name tag was missing. They could be anybody's. Nobody, he stammers, the gravity of the situation fully sinking in. Nobody trusts anybody now, and we're all very tired. He grabs his whiskey and with a second thought, records over his admission of reality. One as stark and as cold as the dreadful land they are trapped in. There's nothing else I can do. Just wait. R.J. McCready, helicopter pilot, U.S. Outpost Number 31. With Fuchs hard at work coming up with an alternative test, the power goes dim and then all is dark. He sparks a light and walks toward the hall when a shadow races by. Fuchs gives chase, now out in the elements with a lit flare. He finds McCready's jacket. An hour goes by and Mac disperses the men to find Fuchs, who had been missing since a fuse went out in the lab. Following a guide wire they had rigged, Mac, Nalls, and Windows go to the tool shed. Inside, Blair has made up the noose. He tells Mac it isn't Fuchs and pleads to come back inside with everyone. They then find Fuchs as a burn-up heap of a corpse, and Windows heads back in to tell the others. Across the compound, Mac notices the lights of his quarters are on, so he and Nalls go to check it out. They are gone for nearly an hour, and Childs has everyone begin barricading the doors and windows. But Norris sees a figure approaching from outside, and calls the rest to come, then groans in pain. A nearly frostbitten Nalls is led inside, saying he cut McCready loose from the guide wire up by his shack because he had found the same shredded jacket Fuchs had picked up, only it was stuffed in McCready's furnace. They question if Nalls has been infected, then the infighting quickly begins, everyone uncertain as to when and where anybody else could have been gotten by the thing. Spooked by the door handle turning, they argue over letting whoever it is in, then hear a window shatter in the supply room. Since Mac has Captain Gary's keys, Childs breaks his way in with an axe, 
and standing there, frosty beard and wild-eyed, McCreevy is holding a bundle of dynamite and a lit flare. Anybody messes with me, and this whole camp goes. He backs up Childs, Palmer, and Windows, but is ambushed by Knowles and Norris. He fends them off, threatening them again, when Norris begins groaning loudly and stops breathing. Mac assembles everyone together, and Doc Copper tries to revive Norris. He applies chest compressions and deploys a defibrillator, but while Mac chides the others, Clark snatches up a surgical tool off the tray. The first attempt at jump-starting Norris's heart is unsuccessful, so Doc goes to try again. After giving the all-clear, he presses down with the paddles, only to have his hands wholly consumed by a large mouth with sharp, jagged teeth that has suddenly opened up in Norris's chest. The agony of Doc Copper sends him with nubs to the floor in a fatal fall. Flailing tentacles and an elongated spine of internal organs juts up out of the chest cavity with more insect-like legs and a snake-like body atop the meat spire. A twisted version of Norris's face emits a bellowing growl as Mac torches it with the flamethrower. While this is going on, Norris's original human head detaches itself and falls to the floor. Using its tongue, it drags itself to safety under a table as everyone extinguishes the fire. In hiding, the Norris thing sprouts spider legs and stalks to see. It tries to sneak away, but they spot it, and Mac rains hellfire yet again. Later in the rec room, McCready wants to do a little test. He tells Windows and Palmer to tie everyone up, but Child says he'd rather die first. Calling his bluff, Mac takes aim at him with a handgun, and just when Clark tries to stab him with the pocketed scalpel, Mac fires one off in his head. He and Windows tie everyone up and explain his test. We're going to draw a little bit of everybody's blood, because we're going to find out who's the thing. Watching Norris in there gave me an idea that maybe every part of him was a whole. Every little piece was an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life. You see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. The blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. It'll try and survive. Crawl away from a hot needle the same. Windows cuts gnolls on the thumb and collects some of his blood in a dish that has his name labeled on it. Mac heats up the copper of an exposed wire and places it on Windows' blood. No reaction. Now Mac tests his own blood. Nothing. He then sticks the wire in copper's blood and then Clark's blood. Still no retaliation. Childs tells Mac since Clark was human, he is a murderer. But he's ignored, and Mac moves on to Palmer's blood. The crimson liquid leaps from the dish. Palmer begins shaking and transforming, Gary and Childs yelling as they are tied up right next to him. Palmer's face turns inside out and bulges, the bones like tumors growing rapidly with blood running over them. The thing stomps on the floor, its hands like roots now, and springs up attaching itself to the ceiling. It jumps down, its head splits open, and wrapping a tongue around Windows' neck pulls him in, biting down on his head with its mandible made from a skull. 
The thing mercilessly jerks windows by his head around in the air before tossing him aside. This allows Mac to burn the damn thing. Head to toe aflame, it bursts through the wall and collapses in the snow. Mac tosses a grenade and blows the Palmer thing up for good measure. Returning inside, Mac burns windows too. Having dealt with the revelation, they continue the test. Nalls is not infected. Neither is Childs. Now with Gary the last one left to test, Childs demands to be cut loose. And the hot wire tells no lies. Gary's blood is just fine. After figuring out they can all trust each other, Matt, Gary, and Nalls leave to give Blair the test, with Childs waiting behind, flamethrower in hand. The three test givers find Blair's door wide open, the bolt on the outside unlocked. While exploring the tool shed under some loose floorboards, they find a tunnel carved out and follow it down to a small workshop. A craft of some kind, made from various parts, including that of the helicopter and tractor, reveal Blair's intentions of leaving. Back upstairs, Knowles says he thinks he saw Childs outside of the main entrance, and then the power goes out. With the generator blown, it will quickly freeze them all to death. All except the thing. In response to this, Mag declares a suicide mission. He blows up the makeshift craft with his dynamite, and they begin torching the entire building. They set off explosions in each room until they get to the generator in the basement. It's entirely useless and cannot be fixed, however. So they decide to set up charges, Nalls by the generator and Gary in the storage room. But while there, he is stalked and attacked by Blair, the thing taking him over with intruding fingers slipping in through the former captain's face. Nalls wanders off to check on Gary, and Mac engages the detonator. He lights a stick of dynamite when from the back of the basement the floorboards begin to come up and forward like a wave towards McCready. Thick fleshy roots tear up through the floor and pull down the detonator. Then the monstrosity controlling them emerges, towering over Mac. Its head nothing more than a giant jaw with teeth bare, and just below that a spastically erratic canine upper body emerging from its abdomen. Mac rolls, grabs the dynamite, and turns to face the thing. The sharpened teeth of the head and the canine appendage screech in its death throes as Mac says, Yeah, fuck you too, and throws the stick, not only killing the thing, but setting off the detonator, blowing the charges, sending the entirety of Station 4 into the ice in a series of explosions. The fires rise forth from the wreckage of this interstellar battle that took place on Earth's loneliest continent, a break in the dark of the Antarctic skies. While the waste of the station burns on, Max sits down, no doubt to slowly freeze, when Childs emerges from the shadows. Childs claims he ran off outside earlier because he was pursuing Blair, but got lost in the storm. As they sit and talk, they ask each other what they should do now, if they should even survive. Max says they should just wait a while and see what happens. He hands Childs his bottle of whiskey and chuckles to himself as Childs drinks of it. 
the entire time they are talking. Max's frosty breath can be seen as fog in the air, made visible by the winter cold. But Childs never once takes a breath, or so it would seem. Just like the Fermi Paradox, John Carpenter's The Thing poses more questions than it answers. The Thing itself is never fully explained. We only see some of what it's capable of, and a piece of high technology in the form of a frozen spaceship. We know next to nothing about the being. Also, who was assimilated at the end? There are arguments for and against both McCready or Childs being suspect. My favorite theories includes Childs being overtaken by Blair out in the snow, his breathless conversation a slight giveaway, and that Mac may have replaced his whiskey with gasoline, tricking the thing which wouldn't know the difference when drinking it and simply play its part. Mac's chuckle could indicate he knows Childs has been assimilated, or like Mac himself revealed earlier in the film, each part operates independently of the other. Mac could have been playing the long game, convincing the others he wasn't the thing by using blood from the bank to test in place of his own, destroying Blair's ship out of self-preservation, and laughs to itself, knowing full well Childs will freeze to death, and it will just hibernate until a rescue team arrives. As I said, there are also counter-arguments, and... This ending and its preceding scenes are fun to research, but cinematographer Dean Cundy dropped this bit of knowledge years after the film was released. Any actor in the scene with an assimilated character had a slight glint of light in their eyes, while the thing would not. In the finale, Mac has that human spark in his eyes, but Childs' eyes are black. What this film demonstrates best to me, through its story and performances, are various fears and the responses to them. The fears range from being isolated, infected, or invaded, alone and helpless, and devoid of humanity. The futility of trying to stick close to what's familiar when the chameleon strikes in the dark. This creates a psychological break in each of the characters. To make matters worse, they are stranded an eternity away from any other soul in the bone-bleached cold of the Arctic blizzards. The distrust devours them all one by one, which would stand to reason a long game, as a being such as the Thing would no doubt be very intelligent and very experienced, able to easily outmatch and outwit the humans, much like the chess-playing computer at the beginning of the film. Everything was a farce. The game was won before it started. Here, the great fear existing deep within us, that deep out there, outer space isn't dead. And Lovecraftian nightmares that await or indifferent to our cares, wishes, reasoning, or lives. As logic broke down, a hierarchy formed in displays of power and posturings. 
But the unknowable came all the same to tear away the hope. This may be the most cherished film I've performed a midnight ritual of, along with Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Evil Dead, but in a broader sense. Its cultural impact has been massive and wide-ranging, and it has undergone a re-evaluation by both critics and audiences. Filmmakers such as Guillermo del Toro, J.J. Abrams, and Quentin Tarantino, among others, have sung its praises as influential to their work. Every form of media has been assimilated, from comics to video games, a prequel being made, and it's reached an elevated cult classic status. This film is properly described now as one of the most influential horror movies of the 1980s, much imitated but rarely bettered. It is one of the first films to unflinchingly show the rupture and warp of flesh and bone into grotesque tabulous of surreal beauty, forever raising the bar of cinematic horror. Sadly, that bar is not a constant, but I've been following a path, though I didn't start off intending to. We're going to keep that bar raised here. We've stared into the abyss for long enough now. I want to bring things back down to earth. And what malevolence we can conjure up when trying to speak to what lies on the other side. We'll start a new year off together with episode 13. This communion has come to a close. I've been Travis Maxwell Boone. Stay spooky, bitches.